Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life. YouTube celebrities, comedians, historians, even neighbors from the small mountain community that I live in. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery. Fueled by an unrelenting need to know more, we look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. If you'd like to support the show and keep it ad-free, you can buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi, or you can become a patron through Patreon. Links to both in the episode notes. Hello, fellow armchair historians. In this episode, I talked to Jeffrey H. Jackson, historian and author of the book, Paper Bullets, which captures the riveting and courageous story of Lucy Schwab and Suzanne Malaire, two gender norm-defying artists better known as Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore. Now, Suzanne and Lucy undertook a dangerous years-long anti-propaganda campaign which used art to demoralize the Nazis. Paper Bullets was named a 2020 Stonewall Honor Book and Nonfiction and Best Book of 2020 by Booklist, as well as longlisted for the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. Jeffrey H. Jackson, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. I was very excited that you said yes. I love World War II history. Well, let's just get right into it, and I'm going to ask the question, what is your favorite history that we're going to be talking about today? Well, the kind of history that I really like to read and write, and and in my teaching, I'm a college professor, the kind of stuff that I really like to, to think about are small stories that really open up bigger windows onto the past. So uh, sometimes this is called microhistory, or sometimes it's called history of everyday life. But I like to, to get at these kind of small episodes and then kind of dig behind the scenes to figure out, you know, how does that episode open up a whole new world for us? And so the story behind my most recent book called Paper Bullets is the story of two women and their, uh, their anti-Nazi resistance. And it seems like a very small story. And in some ways it is. It's just these two people and their work. But once you really start to dig into it and you start to really sort of see the story behind it, um, you really it really opens up a whole world. And I, to me, that's just fascinating when that happens. I absolutely loved this book. I actually listened to it this week while I was multitasking. So I listened to it from Audible. And I it was one of the things I wanted to comment on is what you just said. And the mundane everyday life and how you bring that out in this story. And I think especially when it comes to uh, World War II in Europe, I find that extremely uh, interesting uh, because it's not like the movies. We see the big battles and that type of thing. It's really, I think the story is, and you nail it in this book, is the everyday life and what it's really like to live in an occupied country. Um, My mother 
was born in Belgium, and they were refugees of war in France. And I was always fascinated by the stories she would tell, you know, and she was living in a militaristic town, Mm -hmm. French town. But I think that, you know, it is, it's the mundane life and it's the things that you don't think about. And I think that the real gems are in that and you do a really good job of bringing that out in this book. So why don't you tell us about the book? So, yeah, one of the ways that I talk about this book and actually kind of fits with what you just said is it's the World War II story you've never heard before. <laughs> because, as you say, we often do hear the big stories, the battles, the the military campaigns, and we don't often think as much about uh, the day-to-day life. And in particular, in the place where this book uh, happens, I mean, this is on the island of Jersey. It's one of the Channel Islands. It's in the English Channel. Um, it's the only bit of British soil that the Nazis uh, occupied and conquered during the war. So uh, the Channel Islands are just off the French coast and the English Channel between, you know, between Britain and France. And it was a really strategic area. This was uh, it was part of what Hitler called his Atlantic Wall. I mean, the Atlantic Wall was a series of fortifications along the Atlantic coast to prevent Allied uh, assault uh, on on the conquered lands that Hitler had taken. And so, so these islands were really important, and yet, interestingly, we don't hear about them. But it's really the story of these two women. They were French artists. They were stepsisters. They were also lovers. Their whole lives were intertwined and had been for many decades, even by the time they arrive on the island of Jersey. And when they get there, they think that they're going to live a quiet life, sort of in retirement. They're going to be able to do their art and just sort of live, you know, and, and enjoy themselves. And only just a few years after they arrive on Jersey, the war starts and the Nazis arrive. And so they really have a choice to make. They have to decide, you know, are they going to sort of sit out the war quietly? Are they going to flee like a lot of people did? And many people left the islands and went to Britain. Or are they going to fight? Are they going to resist? And so they debate amongst themselves and and eventually they decide that they will resist in whatever way that they can. And that turns out to be uh, and I think this is another aspect of the story that's really fascinating to a lot of people is that it's a type of resistance that most people have never heard of. When you hear stories about resistance, you think of you know violent acts or trying to to do something that's really big and dramatic. But their resistance was it was small. It was mm-hmm. quiet. and they were they were essentially leaving notes for the Nazis to find, trying to demoralize the Nazis. There are many aspects of this of the story that are so surprising, and every time I've talked to folks about it, they really express the sense of, yeah, I, di- I didn't know any of this. This is really new information to me. <laughs> I talked to a couple people that, and said that I was going to be interviewing yeah, you and what the book was about, and I can't tell you how many people said, I didn't know that the Channel Islands were occupied. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised that how completely the, you know, they made it, the British made a decision that that was it. They could not protect the islands. And so they just let them go to the Nazis. Right. They left the island. They basically said, we were not able to defend this territory. And they sort of thought that it, that the Germans wouldn't really care. They sort of assumed that the Germans wouldn't find it to be useful or interesting. And in fact, it turned out to be very important for the Germans. So so the fact that, that we don't really hear the story of the Channel Islands at least in the United States, we don't hear that story. I think in Britain, they are a little bit more familiar with that story than we are, certainly. But yeah, usually when we when we talk about uh, the European theater of the war, we tend to leave that out. And it's remarkable. Again, this is where the small story opens up into a bigger story behind it. To me, that was part of what was so fascinating uh, in doing this book. Did you see the Google graphic this week of Claude? I did. I did see that. <laughs> and I made sure to to put it out on my social media. <laughs> I had just started doing research, you know, for this interview. And I was like, I know that image, like that's an image of something I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. 
And sure enough, it was Claude. <laughs> and I think the other thing about the book really is about World War II and the resistance, the paper bullets. Mm-hmm. But they had a whole life before that was extremely fascinating right. as well. Maybe you could talk a little bit about them in um, France and what their life was like then. Yeah, absolutely. This story is so fascinating from start to finish, in part because the, the lives of these two women were really sort of remarkable lives. And the way I talk about them is that they were really resistors their whole lives. So that by the time they get to Jersey and, and push back against the Nazis, they've been doing resistance work of some form or other for decades. So some listeners might be more familiar with them. Uh, so their birth names were Lucy Schwab and Suzanne Malherbe. But some listeners might be more familiar with them with their artistic names. So they took these new artistic names when they got to Paris or even before they got to Paris. And their names were Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore. And so Claude Cahoon was the Google Doodle the other day. That's what you were referring to. As artists, they lived in Paris in the 1920s, this really exciting, vibrant time. Of course, also just after World War I. So also, you know, there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of political unrest. But there were also a lot of people like them who had moved to the city to uh, have new experiences. And so they plug into the artistic scene. Uh, Claude Cahoon was a writer. Uh, Marcel Moore was an illustrator. And together they collaborated and made these amazing photographs. So that's really what they're famous for today. And a lot of their work actually hangs in some of the world's best museums. And you can sometimes see their work. And it would, if you see it, it would be their photography. That's really kind of what they've become famous for. A lot of the photographs are things that, you know, today we might find them sort of strange or bizarre. I mean, they were sort of sort of associated with the surrealists in Paris in the 20s. So doing this work that was really challenging, really trying to sort of force people to ask questions about what was, you know, what is beauty? What is art? You know, uh, kind of playing with people's expectations. And they were involved in all of that, very much a part of that community. So what's interesting about them, though, too, is that they were not really famous in their day. They were part of this artistic community, but they didn't really promote themselves. They, they both came from money. They didn't really need to sell artwork or, you know, to sort of, they, they didn't have to be famous in order to have resources. So I think they were just sort of exploring, exploring their ideas, exploring their identities, because as a lesbian couple, they were also sort of challenging some sexual and gender norms of their day. After they left Paris and left the art world behind, they kind of um, fell off the, the map for a long time. And so they were kind of not really known uh, as artists and they were sort of rediscovered again in the 1980s. And really ever since then, and especially in the last, I'll say, 10 or 15 years, have really gotten a lot of, of attention. And that's why Google, for example, made them the Google Doodle, <laughs> made Claude Coon the Google Doodle the other day because they're sort of getting, becoming famous again <laughs> after many years. Yeah, I feel like they were on the forefront of what we would think today is you know, exploring the gender norms, the, um, they were, they were a stop in the progression of the LGBTQ movement, not even knowing it, not even, even wanting to be, and think that, you know, the courage that it took to be who they were, although I felt that, you know, after reading this book, they couldn't be anything else because of who they were. Um, right. And it was, I mean, just, yeah, it was very moving. Maybe talk a little bit more about what happens once they get caught by the Germans. Right. So they spend basically four years writing these notes, as I said, right? notes for the Nazis, leaving them around the island. The whole point of these notes is to demoralize the German soldiers. So basically they're writing these sort of, some of them are, are jokes, some of them are kind of funny dialogue, some of them are 
you know, sort of directed at Hitler, poems, various things. They're trying to find a way to kind of get inside the heads of the Nazis and to kind of convince them that the war effort is lost and that there's really no reason for them to be on Jersey. But of course, in doing this, they are also, you know, violating German occupation rules. <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to be spreading propaganda. You're not supposed to be uh, demoralizing the troops. That's a crime. And so once they are eventually caught, they're, in fact, they're turned in by an informer and they're taken and arrested. The, the German soldiers, uh, the, the secret field police officers come right around dinner time and, and knock on the door and, and uh, begin a search of the house, then take them off to prison. And uh, and they're in prison for a while, uh, and then eventually they're tried uh, and convicted. But part of the story that I tell, and this is all from their writings, from their post-war writings, this is all from from the sources that they left behind. The story of them in prison is also quite uh, amazing because in a, in a lot of ways they actually sort of continue their resistance work. They're put in separate cells, uh, which is really the first time they're separated, you know, since they're children. I mean, they've been together their whole lives. But they're able to communicate with one another uh, in their cells through some secret note passing. But then they also pass notes to other prisoners and they get to know some of the German soldiers who've actually been put in prison for mutiny or other other crimes. And they, they get to know people in prison. They talk, they share ideas, they share notes and messages, and um, they actually uh, comfort uh, some of the other prisoners. And all of this, I think, is just in some ways a continuation of that resistance work that they had done uh, with their note passing. It's just a way for them to to push back against the Germans, but also really, you know, I think it's driven by their sense of humanity. You know, I think it's funny to it's, it may be funny for us to think about it. But a lot of their note writing, I think, was done because they felt sorry for the German prisoners uh, or the German soldiers who were occupying the island. It seems strange to think that that a prisoner would feel sorry for their jailer. But they saw these Germans as kind of Hitler's victims, too, that Hitler had fooled them into prosecuting this war. And it was a, a pointless effort. And so they saw themselves, I think, as trying to help those soldiers. And then likewise, the other prisoners that they come into contact with, they're trying to help them as well. So they really act, I think, out of a real sense of humanity and a real sense of compassion for others. Do bring out that kind of the gray area. And I think it's it, they did do out of a degree of empathy for the German soldiers. And I, it reminded me the whole time I was reading this book, it reminded me of a story my mother would tell me about when she was in France, her and her brother during the war in this town that was occupied by the Germans, that they would go to the, the pastry shop and look in the windows because they would dream about being able to eat the yummy pastries. And she says one day a German soldier walked in and he looked at them. And then when he walked out, mm -hmm. he had bought them pastries. And that was the first time in my life I ever kind of thought about that gray area. And the other thing mm -hmm. my mother said, and you bring this out so well in the book, uh, is that there was a difference between the Nazis and uh, your regular German soldier, uh, if you will. But I think you bring uh, – you know, there's so much more to the book. I don't want you to give it all away in this interview. But mm -hmm. um, one other thing I wanted to say that I thought about as I was reading it, if I was a German <laughs> soldier, I feel like Jersey would have been the best place to be stationed during the war because, you know, there it, it wasn't as brutal as being on the, you know, the uh, war field. So um, that was the other thought I had as I was reading the book. It was a sweet deal to be there. Right. 
It was. It was a. It was a great assignment because it was not Russia for one thing. It wasn't the Russian front, um, and there were a few uh, soldiers that that uh, Lucy and Suzanne encountered who had been on the Russian front and then had been transferred to, J- to Jersey. Well, we know from the historical record that uh, that some of those battlefronts were particularly brutal. And by contrast, yeah, Jersey was a peaceful place. And and actually, a lot of the German soldiers, I mean, they talked about it almost as a land of milk and honey. I mean, it was a place where they could, you know, almost have a kind of vacation in a sense. And yet at the same time, it, it was not there was not fighting. But they also, I think, understood that that this was still an important zone. I mean, they knew that it was part of this Atlantic wall. They knew that it was a strategically important area. And they brought slave laborers from the east to Jersey and the other Channel Islands to build fortifications. And so even though the brutality was not there, they also, I think, understood, you know, that this was important. I mean, Hitler was getting regular updates on the progress of construction of fortifications uh, on the Channel Islands. So there was a direct, you know, sort of oversight of what was going on on the on the islands. And yet at the same time, you there were young women on Jersey that many of the soldiers you know, fell for or vice versa and children that were born uh, as a result of those relationships. You know, there were you know, ways in which the German soldiers, you know, they would attend church with the locals. They would be in the, in the streets and in the shops with, with local Jersey folks. So that was another part of, in some ways, the dilemma that Lucy and Suzanne faced because they saw so many people around them seemingly collaborating with the Germans or, or being nice to the Germans. That was part of the context of them having to decide, you know, what should we do? Should we go along? Should we resist? You know, and so uh, and yet at the same time, there were also other people resisting, too. And so it's funny how, again, you think about these very sort of small local places and once you really start to dig into it, the, the complexity of the story behind it, you know, it's not a simple story where, you know, the Germans all act one way and the locals all act another way. You find lots of different nuance and lots of different complexity, really, to the story. And that's, you know, goes back to why I like these stories that are really focused on on these what seem to be small moments, but really kind of blossom out into these big and really um, sophisticated stories once you really dig into them. So when did you come across this history and why this history? Why did you decide to follow it down the rabbit hole? I actually came to this story through their photographs, these these uh, photographs that they made in Paris in the 1920s and the 1930s. My wife is an art historian, and she, for many years, had taught a course on the history of photography. And so these two women, under their artistic names, Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, you know, have been known, especially among historians of photography, for some time. And so one day she showed me these photographs and she said, look at this. This is interesting. And she knew a little bit about the backstory of the of the wartime resistance, but she didn't know very much. She said, you know, uh, I think you'd be interested in this. And so I started looking at the photos and I was very interested in the photos. And then I started trying to find out more about their their, their biography. And, and there had been a lot of stuff written about their time in Paris, but much less written about their time during the war. And so as a historian of modern Europe, you know, that was something that particularly interested me. And so that's where I really started digging to find out what I could find out about the war. But for me, it's all, you know, their lives are all of a piece. You know, the artistic work that they did in Paris because it was so challenging and, and boundary pushing, it makes sense then that their work in Jersey as anti-Nazi resistors would also be 
boundary pushing and challenging. You know, it's just it, their lives really, there's a consistency there. And I really began to see that as I started to to look at the, the whole arc of their lives, the whole trajectory of their lives. And so, you know, it's been a really great project to think about uh, with and to think about, you know, the war in a different a different way. But but again, having come to it, not through the war experience, but having come to it through their photographs, you know, I sort of went on their journey with them in a way. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Do we see this story, this history in um, pop culture yet? It doesn't seem like it. Well, we do. I guess we do with their photographs. Certainly we do with their photographs. You know, there there have been some things, some productions and talking about the history of the Channel Islands. Uh, there have been a couple of BBC uh, series about the Channel Islands during the war, but nothing really about these two women in particular. And I think it's, in a way, I think they've kind of slipped through the cracks because you know, people who think about the French resistance, and of course they were French by birth, they were born in the in southern France in the city of Nantes and moved to Paris in the 1920s. But people who study the French resistance don't study them because they weren't in France during the war, they were on Jersey. And the people who study the war on the Channel Islands don't really look at them as much because they were French. <laughs> and, and so they were sort of outsiders in a way. And people who do study them from an art perspective or interested in their photography really only look at their time in Paris. And, you know, the, the stuff during the war is kind of an afterthought or sort of a footnote to the story. So it's funny how they've kind of slipped through the cracks in a lot of ways. So so as a result, I think we haven't seen their story been to- being told, you know, like in a movie or in, you know, kind of pop culture ways. Uh, there is one novel uh, that has been written, kind of a novelized version of their story during the war. But in terms of like other representations of that, there really haven't been. Of course, I'm hoping that maybe, you know, some producer will read my book and <laughs> and make a movie of it. Too. But uh, I am until... too. <laughs> it's a great story. Yeah, until really that point, is. we'll have to wait. Did you go to Jersey when you were researching this? I did go to Jersey. I spent some time there. It's a wonderful place. I, I, I can understand why Lucy and Suzanne would want to retire there. For them, it was partly personal. They had spent time there uh, over the years vacationing. It was, a, it was a vacation spot for them. Lucy always had very ill health. And so I think it was they saw it as kind of a calm place, kind of away from the action. Little did they know how this would turn mm-hmm. out. But, uh, you know, and because they had money, because they were from wealthy families, they were able to buy a, a nice big house. And I have not been into the house, but I've been to the house, been able to see it from the outside. And it's right on the beach so they could look out uh, over the bay and and going strolling on the beach and it's a it's a beautiful spot the channel islands are not tropical islands <laughs> they are in the english channel so yeah. it's you know the temperature is not what we would think of we think about the caribbean or something but they are but they're palm trees and they're you know beautiful uh, beaches and you know it's so it, it has that kind of island feel to it and i was able to do research in the archive there the, the folks there were really helpful and really great to work with i think some of the folks on jersey want this story to be told more so like i said they were very helpful in, in working with me and i had a really wonderful visit and I'm looking forward to going back very soon if I can as soon as uh, as soon as travel as <laughs> uh, possible what's the one thing that you want my listeners to take away from this history well that's a great question there's so many things that that I'd like people to think about I guess but I think maybe if I had to think of one thing I, I would think about how many stories are out there like this that we don't know 
you know, we think we know the history of World War II or we think we know the history of, you know, whatever. But in fact, there are more stories to be told. There are a lot of voices that have been left out of our understanding of the past. And I think this is an example of a story that, you know, now that I, now that hopefully it's out there, people are reading it and, and thinking about it, you know, we can figure out how to integrate it into the bigger narrative uh, of World War II, for instance. And, you know, in a way, I've tried to do that with all of my work. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Paris Underwater. And that was the story of the Paris flood of 1910. It was the second worst flood in the history uh, of the city of Paris. And it's and what's interesting about that flood, and it affected the entire city and, and thousands of people were homeless as a result of this. What's interesting about that is that it's a story that very few people know. <laughs> and it's strange because it had such a devastating effect on the city um, right at the turn of the 20th century, at, at this moment that Paris, you know, was this supposed to be the most modern city in the world in many ways. And yet there was this colossal sort of technological and urban failure when the river, literally the river bubbled up from the sewer system, came up into the streets. And yet all of the signs mm -hmm. of that have been erased. You know, the city was rebuilt. Of course, Paris still exists. It didn't drown. It didn't wash away. And so, you know, if, if you, when I started, when I was doing that book a number of years ago, I started talking to people about this story. People would say, oh, I've never heard of that story. Uh, I didn't know there was a big flood in Paris. Or if they knew about it, they only knew sort of a little bit, you know, they'd heard about it kind of vaguely, but they didn't know many of the details. So, so I wrote Paris Underwater, and it actually coincided with the 100th anniversary uh, of the 1910 flood. So the book came out in 2010. People who've read it you know, always say this to me, like, how, how did you find this out? How did you know? I didn't know anything about this. So that's why I say I'm really attracted to those kinds of stories, because I think they help to, to reinvigorate our understanding of the past. They help to, us to understand that there are voices, that there are moments, that there are stories that, that are still yet to be told. And, and that's in some ways surprising because... We think, oh, we've. How could we find out something new? And yet, there's always something new to find out. There definitely is. Even in my own family, I'm working on a documentary about the children in Belgium during the war, World War II. And as I've gone on this journey, I went back to Belgium with my mother in 2012. There were so many things that I discovered that I didn't know, like. My great aunt, my mother's great aunt, who she adored, her family was massacred in World War World War One by mm -hmm. the Germans as they went through Belgium. And, you know, it's a piece of family history I didn't know about. And yet that moment in history made me realize that going back there and looking at the children in Belgium in World War Two, you can't look at that without looking at what happened in World War One. And it just there's I believe that history has so many uh, gems to give us in the future. There's always a story. And I, that's one of the things I loved about your book, Paper Bullets, is that there are so many of those moments. Well, I think, I think that's true. And I, that's a great story there that you, that you just told. And I, I think, you know, it's for me, the great thrill as a, as a historian, you know, when I go to the archive and I'm able to go and, and that's why I'm hoping to get back soon to <laughs> do more digging and find, you know, more stories like this. And um, there's that real sense of excitement. So it can be a, it can be a personal story like what you were just saying, or it can be, you know, a story that uh, a historian finds in the library and the archive. You know, it's, there's documents there somewhere. Uh, they're just waiting to be discovered or waiting to be read or, or to explore. And so it's a, it's a real sense of thrill when you find those stories, I think. And then it's such a great opportunity to be able to, you know, come on a podcast like this and to, and to share those stories with other folks who, you know, might listen and say, wow, I didn't know that, <laughs> you know, and to feel energized too, to maybe go out and find their own stories um, and to think about the past in a different way. I had chills all week listening to the story. 
<laughs> what do you want us to know about you? Where can we find you? What are you doing now? Well, so I teach at Rhodes College in Memphis, and uh, I teach a whole range of courses uh, about European history and about environmental history and a number of other things. You know, my website, jeffreyhjackson.com, has my whole bio and has lots of information about uh, books that I've done. What's on your horizon? Do you have any projects that you're working on? I do have a project that I'm working on. I don't want to say a whole lot about it just because it's in such a very early stage and you never know where research is going to take you. But it's another it's another one of these small stories that I think opens up into something much bigger. And it's in this case, it's a story about an episode that happens at the Berlin Wall. So uh, a little bit later in time, a little, a little different place. But the Berlin Wall has always fascinated me when I was a kid. And this is something that, you know, I think is has influenced me in terms of thinking about how I got to be where I am as a historian. My grandparents, when I was a kid and they had retired, they started traveling and they traveled the world. I mean, their first trip was a literally around the world trip. <laughs> and they went to so many countries and they brought back stories and photographs and souvenirs. And, um, and it, you know, I was always amazed by their stories and, and looking at their photos. And so they really helped to spark my imagination and my interest in all parts of the world and, and certainly in history. And and so I remember their stories of talking about going through the Berlin Wall and, and you know, going through Checkpoint Charlie and crossing into East Berlin, uh, which they did more than once. I don't remember how many times they did it, but but I remember them talking about the, the, the guards with the dogs and the mirrors that they would put under the bus to make sure no one was you know, smuggling anybody or anything in or out. And so, um, so I've always been fascinated by the Berlin Wall. And so when I discovered this episode that I'm writing about, I, I made me think about them and think about uh, all of those stories that they brought back over the years. And so, so we'll, we'll see where this research project takes me, but that's in the works right now. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing what you produce in the future. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. And there you have it, Lucy Schwab and Suzanne Malaire, two undercover literary resistance operatives for the Allied Forces. To find out more about Jeffrey H. Jackson, Paper Bullets, and some of his other works, be sure to check out our episode notes. Thanks for joining us and have a great week.